Hello and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson and I'm the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined as always by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, we've made it to December somehow. I feel like this is one of those years that just kind of blew right by without me really <laughs> noticing. And actually, today as we record is the first day of the winter meetings. So exciting time of year. We were just talking a bit before we hit record about it's getting a little chilly these days and maybe not so so clear in your part of the country, but how are you doing and uh, how are you feeling as we get into December 2023? I'm feeling great. It's been a quiet off season so far. We've only had a couple of signings and trades, but um, you know the winter meetings are sort of like – it's not quite the same as the deadline in, in July where everything happens like compressed into one day. It's more like, okay, stuff's – definitely happens at the winter meetings you know so it's sort of like yeah it's not like a mini deadline but it, and also it's spaced out over a few days so you know but stuff definitely happens so i'm excited about that yeah it's kind of nice because you get your kind of guarantees right you at least get the guarantee of the rule five draft which is fun and yeah with that rule five draft guarantee there's like potential for other moves as people make and obviously the protection deadline is is well past at this point but you know some of those rule five guys immediately after they get picked they get traded and oh i didn't get a guy i wanted and now we got to make a sign like there's there's plenty yep. of dominoes that come from that even independent of the larger stuff and then there's the larger stuff and we're hearing lots of reports about otani and soto and those two are just going to dominate the headlines for a while but kind of on the periphery there's all these really interesting international players coming over headlined by uh, Yamamoto coming from Japan and yeah you're right there's, there's just like it's not necessarily a trade deadline we're not going to guarantee that five blockbuster trades go down in the next four days but it, it kind of it sows the seeds for the rest of the off season, right it's it's the time that everyone comes together in one place with one thing on their mind and that's making transactions improving their roster and we're going to hear start hearing more solid rumors, more rumors of, of deals you might not be thinking of. And that's going to kind of lay the groundwork for future deals, future signings over the next three months. So really exciting weekend. It's, it's always a fun one. Yeah. And we should also note the draft lottery is part of this uh, week as well. So teams of teams like the A's and the Royals and, you know, they'll be you know very excited to see who gets the first overall pick and so on. So it'll be something fun to watch too yeah it'll be uh it'll be somehow end up being the twins again like <laughs> the, the draft lottery <laughs> yeah, <right>. is, <laughs> is grounds for some silliness and yeah I, I think there's pros and cons to that but totally that's, that's good I, I forgot all about that <laughs> yeah um well with all of that um we need to kind of clean our slate before we get into the winter meetings we have a ton of news and rumors to talk about um but very briefly before we get into those, um, we have a first for baseball trade values. We are running an off-season competition based on your user-submitted trade proposals. So, John, do you want to give a, a quick rundown of what this competition is, what it entails, who can join, and uh, yeah, all, all the A to Z on it? Yeah, so it's just for fun and, and bragging rights. Um, so let's see whose trade proposal comes closest on when the actual trade happens, if it does. So... For example, um, you know, if you have a one Soto trade proposal, you get five points for picking the correct team. 
but you know that's not that hard because <laughs> you can follow reports of, that's yankees blue jays maybe and then but then here's the harder part you get 10 points for picking each correct player involved and there's so many names flying around it could be this guy it could be that guy you know it could be johnny brito from the yankees or whoever so you get 10 points for that and whoever gets the most points wins that particular one and we'll do it for each of the uh, major trade candidates and some will not be moved i don't think pete alonso is going anywhere. i don't think boba going anywhere we have him on the list anyway just for fun but you know let's say jonathan india gets moved or you know um, manuel margot gets moved who has the clue whose proposal comes the closest on that so if you win um you know we'll we'll acknowledge you um and uh you know mention you on this podcast and in our newsletter and on the site and we'll feature your trade and give you some bragging rights and some claps and and we'll see how it goes just for fun it's the first and so we're not going to get like super serious about you know cash prizes or anything like that we're just going to do it for fun and see how it goes uh one important consideration it is only for subscribers so um if you want to participate um you have your choice of the front office level for $40 a year, the GM level, which gives you a whole bunch of stuff for $60 a year, both are ad-free. So um, it's just a, a way to um, kind of boost, you know, the perks of being a subscriber. So it'll be fun. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to digging into this as the offseason goes on, as some of these players do get traded and, and searching through the trade boards and seeing, you know, are there any individual uh, users, individual subscribers who are maybe a little bit better at this than everyone else. Maybe there's some subscriber out there that has a source that they aren't telling us about, and they're gonna they're <laughs> gonna w wipe the floor with us on, on this one. So it, it could be fun. I, I think it's gonna be a good time. Um, and at the we, risk we of sounding, oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say we do have a couple of folks who work in baseball operations who follow us and, and are subscribed to us. So obviously they wouldn't count, you know. But uh, <laughs> the rest of us mere mortals do. Um, and I should mention there's a 48 hour rule. So like you know you can't post a trade like right before it happens as the rumors are flying and the names are around. You know, so 48 hours before Jeff Passner cut Ken Rosenthal announces is, is the cutoff. Yeah, makes sense. And. Uh... Just as kind of a slight tangent, you know, at, at the risk of sounding, you know, marketing shill, obvious, uh, obvious uh, admission of, of bias as somebody who works for BaseballTradeValues.com. But I think the, the subscription tiers are both just kind of no brainers if you're going to be a regular user of the site with just the improved performance and from, from dropping the ads on its own, but then all of the awesome features and the tools that you get to use for the full year for just the one time upfront sum and, and contests like this, it's, there's just a lot of fun to be had. If you're going to be using the site every day, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, again, I'll, I'll <laughs> preface with my own biases, of course, but I, I think it makes sense. And so if you were ever on the fence about it, I think this is a good time to just pull the trigger. Hey, guess what? It's a, it's a Christmas gift for a holiday gift for, <laughs> for someone, you know, exactly. who, who uses the site all the time. And by the way, just as a reminder, part of what comes with uh, the GM subscription tier is our whole player value timeline section. And so you can see kind of you can model out like what free agents are expected to get. We know that there are some other free agent predictions out there on other sites. Ours has the ability to be flexible. So you can see like what would Otani get for 10 years? What would he get for 12 years? What if he did two years? You know, and then an opt So you can play around with all those scenarios. And by the way, we've been keeping track of all of the free agent contracts so far. 
And so for our model looks very good on that front as well. We'll publish those results, but they're very much sort of in line with like a small margin of error. So, um, you know, we had Cal Gibson at, uh, at right around the same EAV, for example, we had Luis Severino right around the same EAV. So, so we're keeping track of those. So you can, tr you can feel a sense of confidence that if you sign up for a GM subscription and you want to play around with the, you know, free agent numbers, you can see they're pretty realistic so far. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know I'm checking that pretty much every time a deal is getting <laughs> announced and we're starting to get the financials. Um, and then last little bit of marketing push, I guess, for me is also included in both subscription tiers is discounts on merch. And we have merch. And guess what? That's also a great holiday gift. <laughs> if, if there's someone you know who enjoys the site or who should start using the site or anything like that, we've got cool merch, cool shirts, mugs, hats, and, and those scout quarter zips. It's, it's a lot of cool options and would highly recommend. They're all pretty high quality stuff. And uh, yeah, get yourself a little discount by getting a subscription first. Awesome. Well, cool. Let's get into the meat and potatoes. Um, let's start with Juan Soto. It, it makes the most sense. It sounds like I wouldn't say something is imminent here, but it's certainly a lot closer than it looked two weeks ago. Um, so we've heard pretty much updates on this every day. And so it's, it's fluid. And by the time this podcast episode goes up, very real chance that things have kind of turned in another direction. But what it sounds like as far as the current state of affairs and John, feel free to chime in if you think I'm missing anything or misrepresenting anything. But what I have on this is the Yankees for a while were looking like the primary suitors. And maybe that's a case of, you know, they just get the heaviest reporting because they're the Yankees or maybe they were the front runners for a good period of time. And the deal that was being discussed was not just Soto, but at some point Trent Grisham's name was slipped into there, which makes some sense. The Yankees have a hole out there in center field and Grisham's a great defender. And that's also just another player that the Padres could afford to move on from and, and maybe go for a cheaper alternative at that position. And as far as the return package goes, the Padres are pretty focused on pitching. So, you know, there's the early, early reports of, oh, they're asking for Volpe or Jason Dominguez. And those are obviously, whether the reports are overblown or whether that's one of those like, hey, might as well ask and see what happens kind of things. Um that was never a realistic outcome for, for anyone involved. And so that went away pretty quick. And it kind of started to focus on the Yankees starting pitching, particularly particularly some of their young arms. And so the three biggest ones that have been coming up are Michael King, Clark Schmidt, the two of them young big leaguers who have held their own in, in the rotation, um, both kind of bouncing back between the rotation and the bullpen. And then Drew Thorpe, which is one of New York's top pitching prospects, kind of a pop-up guy. He's making his way up some lists. His his value may creep up here as we go through the offseason and get some of those updated lists. Mm -hmm. um, and the current kind of sticking point is it sounds like the Padres are asking for two, if not all three of those guys, in addition to some smaller pieces. Um, again, it's, it's kind of hard to really tell anything for certain from the outside here and you've got different reports every day and a lot of this is kind of yankee biased for whatever that's worth of these are new york media and new york sources that are really reporting a lot of this stuff out in the specifics um so you kind of have to take it with that grain of salt but it sounds like things are i wouldn't say at an impasse but we're at kind of a, a pause here in the discussions as 
they're both sides are seeming to kind of stand pat on what, what they're looking for here and meanwhile there was a really interesting report that came from ken rosenthal the other day that the blue jays are kind of a sleeper here for soto and again talking about headlining a deal with starting pitching they have a top prospect in ricky tiedemann and whatever you think of alec manoa <laughs> that could be an interesting reclamation project as as part of a deal for the padres and if you can get him back on track well that's that's a shot in the arm to your rotation for sure he was a top three Cy Young finisher uh, before everything fell apart in 2023 so that's kind of the current state of affairs you know there's some other names thrown around a couple other teams kind of on the periphery here but that's that's the bulk of it um, as far as my understanding um, and obviously as we've said before the kind of impetus of all this is that Padres are in a rough spot financially for many many reasons um, between the passing of their owner Peter Seidler between even even before that they reportedly took out money on loans to cover last year's payroll which was a franchise high um, and and increases on, on other spots on the roster a bunch of free agent pitchers that they've lost or are project to lose and then Soto's contract in his final year of arbitration looking like it's going to be in the 30 to 33 million dollar range which is a hefty sum even as good of a player as he is if you're already dealing with some financial issues and a lot of their other high-paid players are kind of immovable um it, it kind of has the team stuck between a rock and a hard place um so so that's where we are with soto i've been rambling <laughs> um john feel free to take it away and give you your take on <laughs> I have affairs some here i have some thoughts let's start with the padre side of it um i saw a report it might have been bob nightingale uh, who it was more definitive from the Padres' perspective. Like, you know, A.J. Preller was sort of trying to get a sense of, do I have to trade him now? Can I wait for the deadline? Can we go for it? And there was a definitive report that said, no, he's been told by ownership that they have to trade him now. In other words, their financials are so bad that there's no ex there's no exception here. And so, so Preller basically... Everyone knows that Preller has to trade him now because he's under ownership orders. That's the sense I'm getting. And so so that's a point against Preller in terms of his leverage. You know, he's got to move him. And so other teams know this, right? Point number two is Soto's making $33 million. And the general landscape of things is, a, is so far as I'm reading the tea leaves, and I'm speculating a little bit, but I'm also basing it on a lot of news, is that teams are more conservative financially this year because of all the uncertainty of revenues from their cable TV contracts coming imploding quite a bit. A lot of teams are like pulling back. The Rangers are pulling back. The Mariners are pulling back. A bunch of teams are pulling back um, because they don't know exactly how much they're going to get from these formerly lucrative TV contracts. So so everybody's like, okay, uh, we can spend a little bit, but not too much. Or, and now here you have uh, a bunch if – you ever, if you have a team with a bunch of needs to fill – and here's this one guy who's going to be making $33 million, and on top of that, you're supposed to give him prospects. That's a tough sell. So that's – first of all, that's the environment. That's the Padres' perspective, and that's the environment. The Yankees' perspective is, okay, yes, we need Soto to beef, beef up our lineup. Um, they're under a lot of pressure because they had a bad year, and they want to be competitors again. Soto's a superstar, so like, okay, great. But the, you get the – Outside of the Blue Jays rumor, there's really nobody else involved. And so the the Yankees' perspective is, are we really bidding against ourselves here? Why should we give up that much? We can take on the $33 million. Hal Steinbrenner, by the way, is not his dad, so he's not going to go too far over the luxury tax, so even he has his limits. 
So they're already saying, okay, we need to fill a bunch of holes, but we're not going to overspend in terms of player capital on top of the salary for Soto. So the negotiations are breaking down because Preller wants a lot, <clears throat> and the Yankees don't want to give up a lot. And so that's where the impasse is. And there's been a lot of talk about the specifics in the names that are being thrown around by Andy Martino, for example. Um, you know, the Padres want Michael King, who, by the way, looked like an ace when he was in the rotation last year, especially his last seven or so starts were magnificent. And so everybody's buzzing around my, Michael King, and the, and the Yankees need more than, you know, what they have on the pitching staff. They need him on their pitching staff, so they don't want to give him up. He has two years of control, uh, and he's cheap. Um, and then Drew Thorpe, like you said, is a pop-up that people are buzzing about a little bit. We have his value at 11. We think that's going to go up because our numbers, our sources haven't updated yet. Um, so figure on he's probably going to be a little worth a bit more than that. So anyway, Preller loves talent. He loves high-end talent. He wants to go for the high-end talent. He's more interested in King and Thorpe than he is the other guys. Like Clark Schmidt, eh. He's got four years of control, but he's meh. He's a back-end starter, right? So he's not going to get too excited about a deal led by Clark Schmidt. So I think that's why he's poking around also to see if the Blue Jays would give up Ricky Tiedemann. Uh, Preller definitely needs pitching because he's lost all these pitchers like Rick Snell and others from his staff. But he doesn't just want bulk pitching. He wants like a, uh, a guy with upside. I think Alec Manoa would interest him if I'm reading his mind correctly because he has had that upside in the past, and maybe he thinks he can fix him. Um, and maybe this is a buy low opportunity, but Manoa is not going to lead a package from the Blue Jays. I think he's going to be a eh, interesting slide in, if you will. But if you're looking at the values, having a package of Tiedemann and Manoa gets it pretty high. And so I, I don't know. And then, and then after that, it's just there's a big drop off from the Blue Jays perspective. And I don't know if they want to give up Tiedemann. So I don't know that there's that much there from the Blue Jays package perspective that it makes sense. And so you're back to the Yankees. You're back to, you know, Clark Schmidt and a few other guys. Like, it's, you know, and, and who's going to blink first? And that's where we're at. Um, I I suspect maybe the Yankees would give up maybe Thorpe and a couple smaller guys and call it a day. And that would be in line with our values, you know. I, it's just a matter of who's going to blink first. I think Preller will blink first because Cashman does know how to trade. He does know how to play hardball. Um, for all the flack he's gotten over the years, he's made some solid, you know, deals. So, um, uh, and Preller has been a little bit, if you followed our site over the last four years, he can be all over the place, right? So, uh, he'll have underpays, underpays, all of overpays. So he's, he's a harder one to read, but Cashman is pretty true to, this is makes sense on paper. He's not going to budge as much. I don't think. So I think the Yankees are in the end of the day because they're bidding against themselves and because they, um, they know how to do this, I think, and because Preller has no leverage, I think it's going to end up being Yankees with a package, probably led by Thorpe and a couple other guys. Yeah, I think that's a fair read on it, especially, you know, it's, it's a little bit of apples and oranges. These are entirely different situations, but it reminds me a bit of what we've seen with the A's over the last couple off seasons where they've had a lot of difficulty getting fair market value, or at least what we perceive as fair market value for some of these veterans that they've been trading off. And they never had a Soto, nobody near that level of play, nor that level of salary. But, you know, it leads to this question of, okay, is this a case that 
the A's front office just isn't that good at this. And I think that's that's a possibility. That's fair. They still have, you know, one of the smaller analytics groups in the league, and, and they've kind of fallen behind the times um, over the last handful of years. But then the other argument is everybody across the league, across baseball, has known that a fire sale is, is taking place here. So why is anybody going to pay full market rate? There's just no leverage there for the A's. And I think that definitely played at least part of a role when you look at kind of the middling returns for guys like Bassett and Manaya and and some other names over there. And yeah, that could be a factor here with Soto. And and like you're saying, you know, his salary and the one year nature of it alone are already serious limiting factors to a trade where you're already taking out, you know, by saying he's a one-year guy, you've just knocked out 15 of the 30 teams as possible contenders. And then the salary maybe knocks out another 10. And then just positional, like, availability probably knocks out another two or so. And so you're kind of down to Yankees, Blue Jays, and, you know, you, you could go down the line and find another team or two that you could make the argument for. But it's definitely not as clean of an argument as it is for these two teams. And so that's a lot of leverage that and especially if reports like this one continue to come out that you know it's not really an option whether they trade soto it's kind of a, an ownership mandate it's just every day the padres lose leverage because this is holding up other parts of their offseason as well you know you can't go out and sign three back-end starters for 10 12 million dollars each if you don't know what's happening with this $33 million that you need to offload off of your books, let alone the extra five or six million that you need to offload with Trent Grisham potentially. So I think you're right. As as it as much as it pains me to say, you know, having watched the evolution of horrible Yankee fan trade proposals over the last half decade or so, um, as much as it pains me to say, I think they might get the better end of this deal and it might end up being a little bit cheaper than certainly than the Padres want it to be. But I think than a lot of people expect it to be. Yeah. Um, one other point for people wondering about our valuation of Soto and, you know, if they think, oh, that's too low. Um, there's two forms of capital, right? There's money and there's player capital, right? So what we're saying here is Soto, if you trade for him, you're already paying $33 million for his salary. That's a pretty close estimate. On top of that, uh, according to our math, uh, he's worth 23.8. Let's round up to 24, let's say. So 33 plus 24 is 57 million. So in other words, if he were a free agent and accepted a one-year deal, would you pay 57 million for one year of Juan Soto, given the fact that the market has never even come close to that much? You know, Mike Trout makes 36 million a year. Steve Cohen paid Scherzer and Verlander $43 million a year, but that was over the limit, and no other team has ever gone there. You know, um, Judge is making forty. So the top of the market for what, you know, granted, those are longer-term deals. But so give it a fact that because it wouldn't be a long-term in our fictional model here, uh, it would be one-year deal, one and done. Still, that's a lot of capital to give away for one player is $57 million. So going over that, even higher than that, let's say sixty. I mean, I could, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't shrug and, you know, sure, that's fine, but, but that's a lot of capital to give up for one year of playing, knowing, knowing Scott Boris is his agent, knowing he's going to take him to free agency because he'll still be 25, and he'll get a huge deal after this year. 
there's no way you're going to get you sh- Yankees should not give much more than that. You they're fully fully entitled to push back and say no. And if, especially if they're the only bidder. So I don't think it's going to be that big a, big a package. It's not certainly not what the Padres are asking for. Yeah, and then other considerations as far as, you know, why why a mid-season deal doesn't seem likely. Point A, most obvious point is the value of the draft pick. It goes away the second the season starts. As it stands now, the Yankees trade for Soto can't work out a long-term deal. Well, they QO him and they at least get that pick back. Um, if if we wait until the deadline, that disappears. Um, we also, uh, John wrote an article a while back. I'll, I'll try to remember to link to it in the in the show notes. Just kind of looking at that exact question of okay, does it make more sense to trade the guy now? in the off season or to wait until the deadline, because this is kind of a, a common threat <laughs> that is made every, every off season and every deadline. There's the threat of, Oh, they could just wait and get a similar return in the off season or in the, or at the next deadline. And we know that that cannot be true for every case. Um, and so John did an article on that and I'll go ahead and link it. And, and kind of the, the summary is it's almost always better to trade the guy now, just because passage of time means that's value. You're, losing you're you're kind of leaving off the table so that that's kind of point a you know outside of the financials of why it doesn't really make sense to hang on to him and then this is a softer point it's it's a bit more subjective but we saw soto get traded at the deadline a couple years back and he really wasn't all that great in the second half and i don't want to read too much into that just because you know, players have down month or two month stretches all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean that something is wrong mentally. It can just be kind of the flukiness of baseball. And in this Soto case, that down two month stretch was still pretty good. It was still kind of a Juan Soto a couple of months, still an above average hitter. But you do wonder if that creeps into anybody's mind. If Preller does decide to hang on to Soto until end of July, early August... And, you know, the optimistic view is this is a guy who could join our playoff team and absolutely overhaul the lineup and carry us to a ring. But perhaps the more pessimistic view is, well, look what he did that one time. He was traded at the deadline. He kind of dropped the ball in the second half. We can't afford to give up a ton of prospects and pay a bunch of money just for him to do that again. So maybe we'll back away from him or maybe we'll offer less. So, again, that's a softer more yeah. subjective point there, but I, I felt like it was at least worth mentioning. Yeah, it's an interesting call. Maybe because he was younger, he had a little bit trouble adapting to a new environment and new teammates, whereas an older veteran is like, yeah, I know the ropes. Okay, hey guys, I'm here. You know, it's like it's a little bit different when you're younger. I'm totally speculating here as well. Could be different from person to person, but it's a valid point. Yeah, and a couple more hits on the Padres here before we move forward. There was one really weird report that came out in the middle of all of this that the Padres are interested in Corbin Burns. And these two have been compared a little bit um, throughout the offseason, as well as by people kind of... We've gotten some questions of, what's what's the deal with the values here? You know, why is Corbin Burns so high? Why is he... I'm trying to pull up the values now. I believe higher than Juan Soto. And it's a matter of... The, the simple math of it that our, our values with some adjustments factored into the mix are essentially what are you worth on the field 
what are you getting paid? What's the difference between those two numbers? And even if Corbin Burns is a comparable player, if not, you know, I could hear the argument that he's a slightly less valuable player than Juan Soto on the field. He's making half as much money. And so that's going to instantly kind of give him the edge and make him an easier player to trade valuable pieces for. However, the the Padres' involvement here is a little bit confusing. Um, if they're if they're so worried about the financials, it would be weird to me for them to trade Soto and his thirty three million and maybe Grisham's five million and great, we just cleared thirty eight million off the books and maybe that gives us twenty twenty five million in space to add three starting pitchers and three relievers and a catcher and maybe another hitter. Uh, and then they turn around and trade prospects and other young talent for one year of Corbin Burns at $15 million. Like, on the one hand, that feels just wrong. On the other hand, that kind of feels exactly like something that Preller would do. You know, he's he's met with this impediment to his team's success and to his team construction of, I need to trade one of the best players in baseball just to clear salary. Well... Let's let's turn around and kind of soften that blow by going and trading for one of the best pitchers in baseball at half that rate. So do I think it's particularly likely? No, given the financial issues and given that Milwaukee has hung on tight to Burns and, and it could go either way with Woodruff getting hurt and non-tendered. You know, maybe they hang on to Burns even tighter now or maybe they are more open to an offer here. And... You can never really count out Preller, but I think it's it's an interesting one that, you know, I could see the logic. I could I could convince myself to get behind it if it if it were to happen. You know, not necessarily as a three team deal with Soto and, and some other club, but you can kind of look at it that way. Of okay, they flip Soto, get that money off the books, get a couple young pitchers, maybe one of them is the one they actually are targeting for the rotation and they can flip that guy and another prospect or two or young hitter or whatever to go get Burns now. So one thing that is surprising to me about the Padres, and then we'll move on, is their farm system has quietly crept back up the list. And you would think after trading all those prospects for Soto and a bunch of other guys over the course of the years, it was just, and for a while it was, it was true. It was kind of flattened out in the, you know, in the bottom half and even in the like 25, 26 range, but it slowly crept up. Um, because one thing that a uh, Preller is really good at is identifying young talent. And that's been his superpower. And B, they seem to have a good uh, developmental model. And so surprisingly, if you look at it, if you're a GM subscriber of our site, you can look at the team rankings and kind of slice and dice. And um, if you look at the miners who has the strongest farm, it's, uh, you know, <clears throat> the number two team is the Padres. And you're like, what? How did that happen? It happened because Ethan Salas, who's a 17-year-old wonder kid catcher, is worth 63.8. He's a future superstar. Jackson Merrill is a 20-year-old shortstop who they identified who's been developing well. He's with 58. So the top of the farm has really been where the payoff is. Dylan Lesko, coming back from injury, high, high, highly ranked, 29.5 rating. Robbie Stelling, a uh, young pitcher, 20 years old, 23 rating. Samuel Zavala, outfielder, 11 rating. So these guys, they've developed five or six blue chip guys at the top. The rest of it is, yeah, there's a drop off, but um, that's slowly improved the firm. What that means is Preller has more capital. So if he wanted to go for Burns, 
you could trade Dylan Lesko or, you know, put a package together of Zavala and Head and Iriarte or whatever the Brewers want. And it wouldn't cause that much of a dent, dare I say it? I'm surprised that I'm saying this, but it's true. I'm looking at the numbers and it's true. So he has the capital, weirdly enough, to get a Burns, even after trading for Soto. Yeah, and and obviously it's some of the same considerations as Soto, where it is just one year of Burns. And given the financial concerns at large, you're, you're not likely to extend him. So you're, you're obviously not talking about moving a salas or merrill in that kind of a deal but like you say you know there's there's actually a couple names it's not just one of those okay top two names in the farm and then a cavernous gap and then you're looking at like these three and four type guys like there's a few of those kind of tradable names in between those top two top three if you want to include lesco there and the kind of depth of the farm and so you're right there is room there to make a move um Last, last point here on the Padres. I don't want to spend the whole episode on this. Um, I did post a Padres roster revamp during the holiday week, the Thanksgiving week. That will be linked in the show notes. Um, I don't want to get too deep into it right now. I want you to go check out the article. Um, I think there's some really interesting user-submitted proposals in here that, that make for what I, what I think could be a creative and, and good and very Preller-esque <laughs> offseason. Um, one I wanted to point out in particular was I think there's an interesting opportunity here with, and, and obviously we've heard Trent Grisham's name get thrown around with these Yankees Soto talks, and that makes some sense. Uh, but I also kind of like him as a fit for the Twins. He's kind of an exact replacement for Michael Taylor, just a left-handed hitting replacement for Michael Taylor, who's hitting free agency. And they brought Michael Taylor in as a guy who can, really be a valuable like more than just a fourth outfielder for them like he's a guy who plays center field often enough and well enough that they can rest byron buxton as much as they need to and that didn't exactly go to plan last year buxton did not see the field at all he was dh'ing all season and taylor had to kind of step in there more often than not and play center field and he was pretty good at it and i think they need another guy like that on the roster as long as buxton is going to be buxton and so i think trent grisham kind of fills that that hole for them pretty well and maybe gives them some flexibility to trade one of their many left-handed hitting outfielders, whether that's Kepler, who's gotten some buzz, or Akiraloff or Larnack or someone else on that team. And so the proposal in here is Grisham for Simeon Woods-Richardson and Louis Varland, two right-handed pitchers. And so there's some upside with those two, particularly with Varland. He's throwing really hard these days. There's some upside there. And and Woods-Richardson maybe more of a back-end arm, but some of that depth that the Padres need. And then as kind of the Grisham replacement, I like Jake Myers from the Astros. Uh, He is reportedly blocked there as well and getting some hits. Um, Chaz McCormick and Mauricio Dubon kind of forced him out of the depth chart there. But he's a very similar player to this, you know, Grisham, Michael Taylor archetype. But he's a lot cheaper. He's in his pre-arb years, and maybe he doesn't quite have the offensive upside that Grisham does, but... He's cheaper, and that's what the Padres are looking for right now. So I think they could trade a couple of lesser prospects for Myers. Maybe Adrian Morejon is in this deal. He's We have him below zero, you know, negative surplus. Um, but he's he kind of just feels like the type of guy the Astros would take a chance on and fix, and suddenly he's a quality left-handed reliever. 
Um, so him and a pair of prospects, and you end up with a, a cheaper Grisham alternative and just kind of shuffling some prospects around. So I kind of like that that part of the roster revamp this time around. Um, those deals coming from user JFlow with the Grisham to the Twins trade and then user KTIN with the Jake Myers to the Astros trade. So go check out that article. Um, I, I think it just shows both the tough decisions that the Padres face, but also that, like you were saying, John, with some of the talent that they have on the roster and in the farm, they do have some options here. There are some outs for them, um, even when you are contemplating a Juan Soto trade. So Yeah, so we're going to see Prowler get really creative because he has, outside of Soto's uh, surplus value, there's not much on the major league roster with surplus value. He's got some pieces on the farm, so he could make some. He could swing some deals back and forth. Um, it'll be one of the more interesting things to watch this offseason. Right. Well, speaking of deals being swung back and forth, with financial considerations at the forefront of them, or appearing to be at the forefront of them, we had a very interesting trade go through. Only only one trade in the last two weeks, which was very kind of the GMs and Pobos and everyone across baseball to give us a little break during Thanksgiving. Uh, but one really interesting trade that I'm, I'm still not sure I've quite wrapped my head around. Um, and that is D-backs and Mariners. The D-backs acquired third baseman Eugenio Suarez, who we had at 8.2 million in median trade value from the Mariners in exchange for right-handed pitcher Carlos Vargas at 1.4 and catcher Sebi Zavala at 0.5. So It's 8.2 to the D-backs, 1.9 to the Mariners. Pretty sizable gap there. This one just barely makes it through the model. Major overpay by the Mariners, or you can view it as an underpay by the D-backs, whichever you prefer. Um, Just a head-scratcher for the Mariners, and we've heard some questions about their approach to this offseason and their financials and how aggressive they're really going to be. And kind of starting their offseason by acquiring Luis Urias in a bit of a weird, um, you know, minor trade ahead of the non-tender deadline. It's like, okay, maybe he's their answer at second base. And then they all of a sudden go ship Suarez off to the D-backs for what kind of looks like a bag of peanuts from here. And it kind of just looks like they just wanted to save five or six million dollars between the salaries of those two guys and and we'll see if they actually reinvest that money elsewhere on the roster but Suarez final year of team control I'm pulling it up right now I believe he was projected or not projected I believe in his final year of his contract uh, he was going to make 11 million or so which is you know far from offensive and especially you know, he's been a bit of an up-and-down player. He has some swing and miss to his game, so there's going to be some fluctuation. But he's kind of settled in as, you know, a solid two- to three-win player. He's got some power and some decent defense at third base, and that'll that'll take you to being a regular or above-average regular. And for that kind of production at age 32, you know, not really falling too far into those 30s on this contract, like, that's worth $11 million and then some. And that's why we had him at positive eight in trade value and so there's a lot of reasons for the d-backs to like him and especially given what they were trotting out at third base last year and on top of all that positive clubhouse guy and nothing but good reports about him and his time with the mariners and it just makes it weird (laughs) that they 
traded him to save some money and just get back Carlos Vargas, who's kind of a quad A, like fringe reliever, and Sebi Zavala, who's a quad A fringe backup catcher who was DFA'd uh, late last season and any team could have had him for free. It's strange. I don't like it at all <laughs> from the Mariners' perspective, and yeah. I think that's pretty on par with the kind of consensus reaction and especially the Mariners fan reaction here. Yeah. All the comments we saw were, especially from Mariners fans, are like, we don't get it. So everybody's in the same boat. Meg Rowley, a fan editor of Fangraphs, who's a Mariners fan, was on a podcast saying, I don't get it. She's beside herself. So the whole industry and the fan base of Seattle is like, we don't get it. So nobody gets it. Um, so I should note that, um, side note, we recently updated our numbers. Um, we always do it in phases during the offseason. So this trade happened before we updated our numbers. Not that it matters because we'll log it at the original number. But uh, Suarez's updated number went down to 5.3. So it's a little bit closer, but still. Um, take Point taken is still a little bit off, 8.2 to 1.9. And the larger point still holds, which is that, um, you know, it, it looks like the Mariners gave up some value here. Um, you know, the only thing you can read into it, you know, as you tweeted, the it has to be a salary dump. Um, now, you could also speculate that it's a precursor to other moves where they've got some irons in the fire, maybe some trades involved or some eyes on some free agents. You know, who knows? But you know, at the end of the offseason, we'll see. But um, maybe it'll make more sense later after these other moves have been made. Sometimes that happens. Uh, but right now, <laughs> everyone's scratching their heads. I think in the context of what we've heard from Jerry DePoto this offseason about the whole, I'm looking for 86, 87 wins a year, like that that kind of mentality. And what we've seen from this team this offseason, the reports that come out that, oh, they're going to be right around $150 million in payroll, and oh, they're already out on Shohei Otani, that was a popular match. Like, I think taking all of that into consideration, the most optimistic in, you know, evaluation of this move is, all right, ownership is imposing strict budgets. They maybe, maybe they really did not like the strikeouts from Suarez and how that was kind of trending in the wrong direction. Maybe they really believe in Luis Urias and think that they can get close to similar production at a lower cost there and can reinvest that five, six million to add more depth to the lineup instead of just dropping from Julio Rodriguez, one of the best players in baseball, to Eugenio Suarez, above average hitter, strikes out a ton. Like, not to knock Suarez, I think he's, like I said, I think he's a great addition for the D-backs in a lot of different ways. And I think I'd love this as a move to start off what's going to be an interesting offseason for them. But I could see a team that was already kind of strapped financially talking themselves into... The, the likely downgrade um, from Suarez to Urias and, and reusing the funds. And I do want to give the Mariners credit for, and we've, we've mentioned this repeatedly on the podcast, this is nothing new, but they kind of have a bullpen factory in Seattle. And yeah, exactly. there's, there's things to like about Carlos Vargas, even, you know, separating the, or excuse me, the Mariners of it all. And, you know, not giving them too much credit that they might not have earned yet for him. But like he throws hard, he's got good stuff. He had some prospect status coming through the minors. And so, and, and the other thing of this is that they've traded 
a few relievers the last year or two because of this kind of bullpen farm that they have going. And so at some point you got to restock that. Mm -hmm. And if this is a guy they've identified who they think can step in and be the next Paul Seawald, Eric Swanson, Trevor Gott, whatever, then deal looks a little bit better. Yeah. So one more point about Suarez. Um, I'm just going to go old school here for a minute and look at his batting average, his home runs, his RBIs. Uh, he's never going to hit for high average. Um, he hit 198 in the in 2021 season, 236, 232. But he does put up numbers. His home runs, 31 in 2021, 31 in 2022, 22 homers last year, 79 RBIs, 87, 96. So fans will look at that, especially, and then you know I'm sure they're they're feeling Seattle fans are thinking, well, that's a productive hitter. That's like a five hole hitter, and he is, right? Um, but he does strike out 30% of the time, and it's his, his strikeout rate has been slowly creeping up a little bit. It was over 30% the last two years, um, so maybe that was a concern. Um, his defense has oddly been all over the place. He, he had a really good defensive year in 2023, which bumped up his Fangraphs war numbers because they look at that. Um, but if you look at the larger sort of regression of the mean, if you sort of figure he's going to fall back into his more career norm, that's going to go down, which means his total war is going to go down. So he'll still probably be the same hitter, low average, you know, 20-ish home runs, 70-ish RBIs, but, you know, he's going to end up being just sort of an average to below average defender, probably. We'll see. I don't know if you can replicate. I don't know if defense is the kind of thing where it's like, oh, one outlier year and then that sticks. I don't think it does. So in other words, you can make a case that Suarez isn't that valuable, I'm squinting here, <laughs> and you could make a case that Vargas, you know, with his raw stuff, can be molded by the Mariners' factory. And he's got control problems, but they've fixed a few before. Maybe they can fix him too. So you can kind of, as Seattle fans, saying, "All right, I guess so." Close to yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, when you kind of look at the totality of the Fangraphs page, like you're like you're saying, I think you can kind of talk yourself into that. You look at Suarez; he's been a somewhat inconsistent player for his career he he came up and was kind of a bench guy and then he has this you know kind of pre-breakout in 2017 he's pretty good and then the, the big breakout 2018 2019 where he 34 homers in 2018 49 homers in 2019 that's that's also juiced ball years but it, it seemed like a legitimate step forward in his production and then 2022, 2021, or excuse me, 2020, 2021 are significant steps back. He's kind of included in that Jesse Winker as the like salary dump portion of that deal to the Mariners. And then he goes out and outperforms Jesse Winker and 130 WRC plus last year. Good for him. But then as you're saying, you know, it, it he took a step back offensively in 2023 down to a 102 WRC plus. He took a massive step forward defensively, the best of his career. And so with a guy who has shown a history of being, you know, somewhere between slightly below average defensively and slightly above average defensively, when that's been kind of the story of his career uh, defensively, and all of a sudden he posts great defensive numbers at age 31, the safe assumption is that that's going to come back to the norm. Yeah. Okay, so let's... You know, even before accounting for age or anything, let's bump his 2024 projection down into the like two and a half win range to account for that. Well, after that, you're looking at a guy who went from a 130 WRC plus at age 30 to a 102 WRC plus at age 31. 
is that kind of a blip? Is that kind of random variance? Or is that decline? Is that age-related decline? And, you know, the strikeout rate is high, as we've said, and he still does walk and he still does hit homers, but does he hit enough to sustain that kind of offensive profile? You know, this is a guy we think of as, as a big slugger, but he slugged under 400 last year. And granted, pitchers, park, Seattle, whatever, but I think there's a valid reason for concern there as well. And when you kind of put it all together, Steamer hasn't projected for a 1.6 win season. And that's a lot... Of, that, that's a very different calculus, a 1.6 win player making $11 million than a three, three and a half win player making $11 million. And so you can talk yourself into it from the Mariners' side. However, that does discount the clubhouse side. That does discount, okay, who's the replacement? Luis Urias, a guy whose numbers are similarly concerning in a lot of different ways. And it discounts, you know, this is a team that desperately needed offense, and this was one of their few offensive contributors in 2023, and they're just shipping them out the door for, again, what looks like peanuts in a bucket of baseballs. So I I think, you know, you can talk yourself into it, and that's kind of how I'm assuming the deal got done, is they talked themselves into it in that kind of way. But I think it's still fine to not like it for the Mariners and to be yeah. concerned about how they improve their team with this deal. Yeah. Um, if I were a Mariners fan, the only other thing I would be concerned about is how like, how serious is this whole like budget situation? Are we really pulling back that much that we have to give away a productive guy for basically nothing? That's a little scary for Mariners fans, and I feel I feel it too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's one of those things we'll have to see how the offseason shakes out. You know, there's been a lot of buzz about Blake Snell. He's a local guy, and it seems like he wants to pitch for the Mariners, but he's not going to go do that for free. <laughs> and so it takes two to it, – it's a weird case of usually it's, you know, the aggressive team that can't quite convince the guy to come join them because he'd rather stay close to home. This seems like it's the opposite case where the guy kind of wants to come home and pitch, and the team's just not going to hand him the check that, that they need to to make that happen. Or if they do, maybe that means trading another – you know, productive player who's making a few million, few million dollars just to make room to what improve what was already a team strength in the rotation. So I, I don't know how that shakes out. I don't know if somehow they find themselves as a mystery team here coming back into the fold for Otani. Um, there's there's still plenty of offseason, a lot of things that can happen and kind of buck what the the reports are coming out with for their finances. But I think there's valid reason for concern and and this kind of Leads into another topic that I know you wanted to hit on today, John, of just kind of the league-wide financial return, uh, financial concerns and what might be leading to that and what that might mean for the offseason as a whole. So I'll let you kind of take it away there. Yeah, so if you've been following the news of this stuff, and it may be boring, so uh, I don't want to go too far into it. But basically, the cable TV, the local table, cable TV contracts are, are, um, are falling apart. You know the main, the the two main companies that have these, they're called regional sports networks, and they're losing money. And one of them went bankrupt, which is why the Padres probably had to make payroll last year. And then some of the uh, hit got absorbed by MLB themselves. But you know, MLB is basically comprised of all the other teams, so all the other teams don't want to subsidize the teams who whose TV network is bankrupt. Anyway, from a team's perspective, it's causing a lot of financial uncertainty because 
They used to count on this money, and now they don't know if they can count on it anymore. It doesn't look good. Um, so Diamond Sports Network went bankrupt. And then now uh, the other big one, Warner Brothers Discovery, has said it's getting out of the business. And here's the thing. A lot of this was gravy. A lot of this was like if you subscribe to a cable package, you know this, and pretty much everybody does. There's a lot of sort of things that you're paying for that you don't actually watch. And so there's a lot of little old ladies who didn't realize they were paying for $7 a month for you know the Mariners or the Padres sports network. They never watched it. It was just part of the package. And these teams are counting on those, those that revenue, right? And so now we're moving to a model where – it's probably going to be more based on streaming, um, and it's going to be a lot less. So twenty cents on the dollar, for example. I'm making this up, but it's you can't count on the 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 little old ladies not watching it anymore and paying you for it any more than you used to. So the and so it's causing a lot of financial uncertainty among the owners, and I'm getting the sense so far. I know it's early, but I'm getting the sense so far that it's going to be a more conservative year in terms of ownership, saying to GMs, "Here's how much money you have." We saw it with the Texas Rangers; they just won the World Series. And there are reports that the Rangers are not going to be spending much. We know the Mariners have said they're not going to be spending much. We know the Padres are cutting budget. We know the Twins have said they've cut budget. We know the Guardians have said we've cut budget. All of these teams have been affected by this issue of the revenue drying up from these sports networks. So it's a big thing, and it's having an implication on you as a fan knowing what you can get in free agency or trades. Yeah, and a couple notes on that. One, I don't think that's impacting Otani at all. I don't think that's impacting... Yamamoto at all and we've seen and what we're going to get into next Aaron Nola his deal is very fair I don't think it impacted that deal at all and so top end of the market I'm not too concerned about you know teams will still pay the premium that they need to for high level talent but I think once you get into the middle and bottom of the market is where you could see that impact actually being felt of teams you know do we want to pay you know 15 million dollars a year for Michael Waka or would we just rather keep that and, and, you know, go with our internal option who's maybe projected to be worth a win less this season, but is going to do it for the league minimum. And that that's walk is just kind of a name I pulled out of thin air, but replace that with your, you know, somewhat interesting, but still kind of risky veteran player who's going to be getting a deal kind of in that range. So that's, that's kind of point a there point B. We saw a report from Ken Rosenthal, uh, I believe it was either this morning, last night, it was pretty recent, um, where they, there is kind of another revenue stream that's coming through. And that's in the new CBA. There's like luxury tax payment. Reading directly from Rosenthal's article here, under the previous collective bargaining agreement, about half the proceeds went to player retirement funds and the remaining half was split evenly between all teams who were under the luxury tax threshold. In the new CBA, players still get around half for their retirement fund, but the remaining half is dedicated to revenue-sharing recipients that have grown certain local revenue sources over a multi-year period. With a record eight teams going over the luxury tax in 2023, the fund is expected to grow to about $100 million, more than twice what it was a year ago, according to sources briefed on the details. Teams with uncertain TV futures, such as the Guardians and Twins, would be eligible for a share of that money, helping offset what they might lose in their rights deals. So... Is that a true solution to the problem? Of course not. You know, this this is impacting some of those luxury tax teams as well. So you look at the Padres who contributed heavily to that pool with their overages. They're going to be going, or at least trying to get into a lower threshold of the luxury tax. They're spending less. 
That means there's less money in that bucket, which means there's less money to go around to those Twins and Guardians type teams. Uh, so this is by far, you know, like I said, not a permanent solution to the problem, but it could at least help out here and there yeah. a couple bucks. And then it, it's a little bit of a band aid, but I, I don't think it's going to solve the larger issue. But yeah, right. <laughs> right. Last point I want to make is you, you think about, you know, the twins are shopping Max Kepler and Jorge Polanco. And that's nothing shocking. You know, if you didn't know any of the context of the TV deals and some of the some of those revenue concerns, I don't think you'd be too shocked by either of those guys getting shopped around, just looking at the construction of the Twins roster, some of the finances they have in place, some of their historic financials. Like, they, they have younger players who can theoretically come close to replicating that production for cheaper. They've never been a big market team that pays these huge salaries every year, huge payrolls. So, yeah, makes sense that they'd shop those guys. And there's still going to be interest in these two guys, but... It remains to be seen, you know, if every team is thinking the same way and, you know, there aren't as many, we're, we're not expecting as many Padres and Mets and Rangers that are going to kind of be the aggressive spenders this offseason. I don't know if we have a team to fill that gap. Then does that dilute the trade returns for these passable veterans, you know, that aren't on offensively large deals? I guess, I guess Eugenio Suarez falls into this category as well, right? where he's going to be productive, he's going to be a productive player, he's not a star, and he's guaranteed some actual money, and that might just make it hard if everybody across the league is trying to cut budgets or, or keep them kind of in line with inflation at the very least. How do you fit those guys into your roster along with other potential needs? So right, so we it's could part... see that. Yeah, you could see kind of like every team has their board, right, and their budget. Now, so what we're saying is ownership is basically saying across the board, hey, guys, we have less budget this year, so you're going to have to be smart. And so now it's putting pressure on the GMs to say, okay, how can we be smart with what little money we have? Some have a little bit more, some a little bit less, but they're basically like really playing chess here, saying, okay, we signed this guy, we can't sign that guy. If we trade for this guy, maybe we can get another guy. You know what I mean? There's a lot of that going on right now, which is why I think it's been quiet because – they're all trying to figure out this this puzzle. Um, a lot of them are in the same boat, and so um, you know, I think I think that's kind of the main sort of overhang of the market right now in general. I did want to squeeze in one other point uh, around the whole TV network debacle, which is that um, the actual viewership, as I understand it, has been skewing older and older and older. And I have three sons. They have never watched, sat through a live baseball game in their lives. <laughs> and the older ones are 13. They have, and not because of lack of interest, because lack of patience. You know, they're watching a slow game. Now, they love the game, but there's tons of commercials in between innings. And the old, the announcers are like telling old war stories that they have no idea. They don't care. So what they do is they watch YouTube highlights the next day. <laughs> so that is, so the future is in streaming and some sort of condensed package that they can relate to a little bit better. It's not the current model. Right. I, I can even relate to that in some cases <laughs> of, do I really have two and a half, three hours to commit to the worst A's team I've ever seen in my life? No. Okay, cool. Let's just see how many bases Asturio Ruiz steals tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of last thing I want to say here on this before we get into a whole bunch of free agent deals, probably kind of rapid fire over the next half hour or so. Um, we haven't made any adjustments to the model for this potential for for this you know financial concern. Um, 
and this this just kind of goes back to our philosophy with the model as a whole is we'd rather be reactive than predictive in a lot of cases um it's kind of it's almost reminiscent to some of the stuff coming out of the last lockout and the 2020 season and there were there were similar financial concerns with um with those years and those unique situations as well as you know the universal dh people asked us a lot are you guys going to make any adjustments to kind of the dh penalty that you guys have and we didn't and it turned out that that was a, a good move you know we saw dh types even after the universal dh getting kind of paid and treated the same way as they were before the universal dh it didn't bump that entire market or anything so we'd rather you know wait and see what the off season has to show us and if we have to make an adjustment partway through sure we will we will make adjustments to account for the market but we're not going to go out on some limb make some aggressive prediction and then all of a sudden we're off on the soto trade by 20 million because we tanked his value for this financial consideration that the yankees just decided they didn't care about or yeah. something like that so yeah we're, exactly. we're not gonna so, go crazy here yeah yeah we play it down the middle pretty much unless it, there's a lot of evidence that suggests otherwise if it's skewing high you know maybe we we we're always trying to calibrate to the market right it's the larger point um but sometimes if it skews high early that doesn't leave much budget room for the next few set of moves in which case it won't skew high so you can't just look at the first week or two and say yeah that's a pattern because it's too small a sample size and too early so you know we'll, we'll keep an eye on things as we go but we'll our default is always playing it down by the playing down the middle and i will say that you know, talking about these concerns, the type of players I would have expected to be most impacted by this are the Luis Severinos and Kyle Gibsons and Lance Linz. Like, those are the type of guy, you know, back-end veteran starter in, in Severino and Linz's case coming off of pretty terrible years, where you might expect to see most affected by this kind of shift in, in finances. And, you know, that question I said earlier of, do we gamble on Lance Lynn for $12 million or would we rather, you know, offer him six? And if he says, no, we're fine going with this internal option, but all three of those guys have gotten pretty fair deals according to yeah. our model. And that's based off of pre 2023 off season financials. So, you know, what we kind of expected coming into the off season without any of this TV deal context. So that's at least a data point that shows you know, there, I think there's going to be some impact felt, but it might be more toward the bottom of the market once we get into like the February, March kind of bottom of the barrel type stuff. Yeah, it's true. And we do have, you know, we do consider um, what markets typically pay per position. So we know there's always high demand for starting pitching. So even if it's like an old warhorse that's kind of in decline, like Lance Lynn, they still need his innings. Or sometimes it's a guy like Severino who's kind of the opposite, a bit younger, but, you know, a lot of trouble, a lot of fixing going on there, but he's got a little bit of upside, so it kind of balances out. So all of that is to say that starting pitching is always in demand one way or the other, and so we account for that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, John, we got some breaking news while we were sitting here recording. Are you are you sitting yeah. down? Are you are you ready for this? I uh, I think I know what you can say, but yeah. The Angels made it under the luxury tax threshold. Ooh, good for them. Good Congrats for them. to Artie Moreno's checkbook. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> yeah. So, 
all of all of the chicanery all of the, the tomfoolery of waving all of these veterans hey guess what it paid off and it, it didn't end up making a difference that nobody claimed randall gritchick for some reason so good wow. for them they just just snuck under the wire there with i think you know the they got under by a by a max stassi restricted list ah, i knew there was something going on there uh, um joking aside that is probably kind of impactful for them but that's not a ton of our the, concern right now. The main, yeah, the main thing is the draft pick, the QO draft pick they get for Otani when he signs somewhere else will be after the second round instead of after the fourth round because they're not a luxury taxpayer. Now, yeah. that's the difference between pick number 70-ish or pick number 140-ish or whatever. In monetary terms, the way we value these things, it's not really much. It's a rounding error. It's like, the, you know... The uh, the second round pick after second round will be about four million. The one after the four will be about two million, three million. But there's some variance there, so they saved a million or two bucks on the on the draft pick. Yeah, there's that, and there's you know they kind of reset because there are you know the the penalties do compile the more years that you are over the luxury tax. So if they chose to spend big yeah. this off season, which I don't know if that's in the cards for them, but if they chose to do so, then instead of oh this is the second year they're going over it would be the first and so they'd only be subject to that first tier of penalties and then so on and so forth so there's that consideration and then there's obviously the tax itself they don't have to pay which yeah you only get taxed on the overage so if they were over by a million it's not like they're paying much of a tax anyway but it's it's not nothing i guess i don't know yeah i mean it's already part marino's checkbook yay <laughs> but no, yeah the the but from an adels fan perspective which was what we care about is I don't know if it changes anything. I don't think it does. Maybe because you're not going to be taxed as much. Maybe, you know, he signs another couple of free agents or I don't know. It, it's totally unclear what the strategy is at this point after having lost to Tony. I know there's still reports that they're sort of still in on him, but I can't see it happening myself personally. Um, you know, and what do they do with Mike Trout? That's a whole other conversation. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think it matters directionally. Yeah, I'm trying to say. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I know we have about 25 minutes to get through about 15 tabs worth of free agent deals, but we've spent a lot of time this episode talking about money. We've spent a lot of time this episode talking about Soto. I feel like I just need to mention it. I feel like we haven't talked much Otani, you know, not just the two of us, but the whole Otani market has been kind of quiet. And I think that's by design. I think yeah. that's just like, you know, I, I talked a lot during the season about, oh, we're going to have madness this offseason for Otani, and it's just going to be the craziest free agency we've seen in a while. But I honestly, it's been kind of tame. It's, so, I, I think that's just a reflection of his personality. You know, we heard the reports that he, and I think it's an overblown report, but something along the lines of like, oh, if his meeting with the team gets leaked, then he's not going to sign there. I think that's kind of an empty threat. I think if he wants to sign with, say, the Blue Jays, I don't think that, He's going to say, nah, never mind, just because somebody tweeted it out that he went to Toronto for a coffee or something. But I I think that's pretty indicative of just who he is as a person. You know, he's the <laughs> one of the highest profile athletes on the planet. Like, he's an international sensation. But he's not necessarily as interested in the spotlight. He's not making a spectacle out of this like maybe a Bryce Harper did. When he was a free agent, he's kind of just going about his business and quietly trying to figure out what's best for him. At, at least as of this point, that's all that it really looks like. And I really respect that. And that kind of just makes me like him even more. 
Yeah, he's a quiet guy, right? Like, did you see the clip of him when he won the MVP? It's just him sitting yes. alone on his couch with, with his, his dog, dog, with his very right? cute dog. And As then he won the to... Edgar Martinez Award, and he's got a cat with him. He's he's yeah, just like it, us, John. Yeah, he's just he's just a quiet sort of stay at home guy. As opposed to Blake Snell, who had all his friends and family. Woo! And then you know, that's Blake Snell. So, um, so Atani is a quiet, very private, very private, uh, quiet guy. We saw even when he first came over from Japan. One of the stipulations is he did not want to be a fishbowl in a big market. He wanted to kind of, and that's why he picked the Angels, even though they're sort of adjacent to a big market. They, they're not like a big media frenzy. No, he's not a lot of media in Anaheim, right? So he go about his business quietly, which is what he wants to do, uh, which is why the New York teams are thinking they're out because he's not like, you know, going to be on the back page of the New York Post every day. He doesn't want that. Um, so, um, so chances are, you know, he's keeping it quiet based on his style but also based on where he wants to play, I think, is, is what's going on. And his, his agent, as, as reports have been shown, it kind of is, is similar. So they're in sync. Um, so, yeah, there's just no buzz because they're meeting in private and they're figuring it out. Um, that's, and we won't know until we know. Yeah, I will say that it's, I just have a hard time picturing Otani with the Blue Jays. Like, not from a, like, I can see him in the uniform perspective, but from, like, a baseball history context. Like, can you imagine if... If instead of going to the Giants from the Pirates, he Barry Bonds went to the Blue Jays or the, or the Expos or something, can you imagine how weird that would be in like baseball hindsight of having one of the Titans of and nothing, no knock on Canada, no knock on the Blue Jays, but just a, a historical baseball Titan spending the great years, the half, the second half, the prime of their career with this kind of a, a I don't want to call them. I, I don't know. I, I feel like this is veering into I'm being mean to the Blue Jays for no reason territory. <laughs> I don't know. It just it just feels weird to me. I don't know. I, I well because they haven't been around as long as a franchise. There's not as much sort of a storied history. Yeah, I, I think I'd feel the same way if you went to the D-backs or. Okay, fair. So <laughs> yeah. that's that. That's making your point. Okay, all right. Um, I guess so. Um, I don't know. Who who's to say? Um, what I what I think is pretty clear is that. You know, Otani wants to win. Like, that's going to take precedent, it seems, over money. Um, location is a factor as well for the reasons we just stated, but I think it's more about, like, where he feels comfortable and where he can be a winner. Um, that's been his whole life pattern, right, is to be a winner. So, and he's worked really hard and he continues to be that kind of dedicated workhorse kind of guy to do that. So he does it his own way, and, and but that's, that's what he wants. So I don't think it's going to end up being the highest – valued contract i think he, although it's going to be very very high as we know i think it's going to be about where he feels comfortable and where he feels he can win and that's why everybody thinks the dodgers are going to end up getting him because all the pieces seem to fit yeah i mean i'm i'm not making any predictions let's put it that way i i think he could shock us all like he did the last time around so i'm gonna i'm gonna sit back and watch i'm not putting my my name on any any specific team here well Let's get into these actual signings here so we can have a clean slate to go into these next two weeks and the winter meetings and all that. Um, as I said before, running low on time, these are going to be somewhat rapid fire, but I think there's still some some interesting points to make about each of these guys. Uh, so the Phillies re-signed Aaron Nola. That's the big one. It's a seven-year, $172 million deal. No opt-outs, no club options, just straight 7-172. Like, immediate reaction to this, I think it just makes a lot of sense for both sides. He's he's a really good pitcher. He's one of the last workhorses. And it's it's the kind of thing where everyone's a workhorse until they're not. 
but I think he's proven it as a skill. And yeah, maybe he'll get hurt at some point during this deal. That's just kind of an inevitability of a pitcher. But to this point, he's been extremely durable, you know, extremely effective, maybe not at that like front of the Cy Young race type of production. And he's been a guy whose ERAs haven't always matched his FIPS. He's, and maybe that's a, a factor of Philly's defense or that ballpark being a little hitter friendly. But at the end of the day, really, really good starting pitcher, really durable, really, you, you just stick him into that rotation and you don't have to worry about that spot all season. And especially, I believe after this season, Zach Wheeler's a free agent. If it's not this, if it's not next off yeah. season, it's the one yeah, after it that. It's, it's something they got to start thinking about with how excellent he's been. And I think it's huge for them to just have this spot locked up. So that that's kind of my take on it. Um, any disagreement, other thoughts there? And what did the model think of this? Game? So, so yeah, I was just going to mention, let's play a little game here. I'll tell you how the model did each with each one of these run through by the list. And I'll tell you what the overall um, average is. So um, the model had him. So he signed for an AAV of 24.6. The model had him for those seven years is 27 even. So the difference is 2.4 uh, percentage terms. That's 10%. He did state that he had higher offers. He took a hometown discount. So we feel pretty good about that, that we think he should have gotten 10% more, um, which is about right. So that's where we are on that one. Otherwise, yeah, and, that's, your points. and that's either 10% more on the AAV or yeah. same AAV over an eight-year yeah, period, exactly. basically. Right, right. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I think that's about as cut and dry as any of these are going to get. There's nothing really new we can say about <laughs> his fit with the team since he's going right back to the one he's always been on. Um, let's talk about, I, I think this broke around the same period of time. It's nowhere near the impact, but it's pretty interesting. The Braves signing Reynaldo Lopez. It's a three-year, $30 million deal. It is quite backloaded. There's an $8 million option for the 2027 season with a $4 million buyout. You know, this comes through and it's like, okay, they're just continuing to build up this bullpen. Good for them. And then they said that he's going to prepare as a starting pitcher going into next offseason, which is kind of interesting um i don't know how long that's going to last i don't know how that's going to go but the braves have become one of those organizations that they make a move that kind of bucks the norm and instead of just outright questioning it you have to give it a second of pause and be like okay are they seeing something that we don't should we trust them on this you know what's going to come of this I i think they've entered that territory as an organization for me just with how successful they've been and how many times they've proven me wrong over the last few years. And so it's not like this is out of nowhere. It's not like they took Robert Stevenson and said, we're going to stretch him out and make him a starter. This is a guy who was a starter and made, you know, 25, 30 starts a year for a few years there. It's just that he got an, a velo tick going to the bullpen and found much better success there. And so are you just kind of going to see the same middling results out of the rotation once you bump him back there? And are you going to end up sending him back to the bullpen to be a solid late inning arm at some point during this deal? I think even if you do, it's a super fair contract, but yeah. I, I don't, I don't blame them for kind of taking a chance on the upside here. So we modeled it out at that. According to our model, they would uh, exercise the option on the fourth year. So it's a four year, $34 million deal. And that basis, we had the same number uh, so it's an 8.5 AAV. We had a 9.5. So we were 12% high. Um, but then the fact that they are treating him as a starter kind of says, okay, well, he's going to be a lot more valuable if, in fact, that succeeds. We'll see how it goes. I personally don't 
buy it because I haven't seen that. We've seen it all that often. Even with Michael Lorenzen, who was converted, it's like, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't really that good. Um, so, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, sometimes the yellow uptick goes away after, as you noted. And so when you go to the bullpen and then back to rotation, you have to pace yourself. Makes sense, right? To throw more innings. But maybe there's something in his pitch mix that they identified that they could say, okay, well, he can throw this more often and that less often, and it'll work. So we'll see. And with the way they've built out the bullpen there, I could also see an argument to, okay, what if we just tell him he's a five inning guy? You know, what if we tell him he's going to go out there, he gets 18 batters, he's going to throw 80 pitches and that's all he needs to worry about, all he needs to account for. And so maybe you're not looking at 99 plus velo, but maybe you're also not stepping it back to 96 or whatever he averaged as a starter. Maybe there's some middle ground there if you're going to mm -hmm. give him in shorter stints and, and maybe that's a path to success. Okay, let's move on to the Cardinals. The Cardinals basically bought half a rotation here, and now they have a bunch of a bunch of grandpas <laughs> going to be taking the ball every every day in St. Louis. Uh, let's start with the biggest one, Sonny Gray. It's a three-year, seventy-five million dollar deal. Um, there is a fourth-year option at thirty million dollars, and the buyout uh, is five million. And this deal is also pretty heavily backloaded. You could speculate whether that means they're leaving room in the budget to make another addition in 2020 uh, for, for 2024. Alternatively, you could look at that as, okay, they're right around this 180 million mark that they wanted to stick at for this off season. And after in the, in the coming off seasons, they're going to have guys like Paul Goldschmidt coming off the books. And so it's, it makes sense for the deal to be backloaded for those reasons. Um, so you can kind of look at that either way. Uh, I like Sonny Gray a lot. I have his whole career. He's kind of one of those, like, it, it gets overused, but he's, he's kind of a gamer. <laughs> you know, he kind of just goes out there, bulldog mentality. He's a, he's a bit of a smaller guy, and he just goes and throws the ball, gives you, leaves it all on the field. You know, all of the cliches that we can give for, <laughs> for Sonny Gray. Um, but that kind of makes him a good fit for the Cardinals. You know, I don't know if he's necessarily an ace going into his mid-30s here. I don't think there's any real possibility he replicates how phenomenal he was in 2023. I think he's it, at least some step back is kind of inevitable here, but I think even with that, there's, there's room for that in this deal. There's room for him to be more of a number two, number three guy. And it's still a fair dollar value. And it's still kind of exactly what the Cardinals need. And it's, it's stability. He's, he's a pretty reliable guy in that rotation. Yeah, I agree. So looking at what the Cardinals are doing, is similar to where the Rangers were when they basically said, looked at their rotation a year ago and said, there's nothing here. And so they went out and said, signed DeGrom and Evaldi and Heaney. And, you know, they basically bought a rotation, right? Don so Gray. the Cardinals were looking at like, okay, we can do that. <laughs> and so, um, and, you know, so they bought three guys. Um, now, for Sonny Gray, um, so his AAV is 25 for three years. Um, our projection is 24.2. So we were very close. Difference is 0.03, so 3% off on uh, a so pretty much dead on. Um, and I, I, I'm pleased that the fact that he signed more than – a lot of the other public projections had him at like an 18, like a four-year deal for 72 or whatever. So I, I think they were underrating him. I think that the certainly coming off a big five or year helped, but, but also he's been a kind of criminally underrated all his career, I think. He's a good pitcher, and – doesn't get like the superstar status. Maybe he's not an ace, but he's a two. I think he's a two. And so he's leading this, you know, purchase of pitchers here that they've gotten. So I think good for him. 
Yeah, the problem there is that he had the worst season of his career in New York. And but and now we're hearing in. more reasons about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've seen some reports like like from his ex catchers, like say, oh yeah, they wanted him to try this and do this, and like it wasn't his thing, and like it. But we knew that we knew it was a total mismatch, and they were trying to get him to do something he didn't. You know, it wasn't him. So now he's been himself ever since, and he's been really good. Right. Right. Um, we've already kind of touched on these two, but they also the Cardinals also signed Lance Lynn to a one-year deal with a club option for 2025 that was a one-year let's see 11 million dollars and that's that's 10 million plus a 1 million dollar buyout for 2025 and then as well kyle gibson similar contract 12 million dollar guarantee with with an option i don't know if we've gotten the exact specifics on that option yet yeah it's a 12 Um, so okay um yeah, it's just a straight 12. I don't think there's a buyout. So, yeah, we were very close in those as well. Um, AV for Lance Lind was 11.5. We were at 13, so we're 13% up. But Gibson, we were right on the money. 12, 12. So, same thing. Okay. Yeah, and obviously that's that's a small gap on Lynn, but it's worth noting that the model was also, depending on how you look at it, it was actually low on Lynn last offseason, depending on what you think of that, or not last offseason, last deadline, depending on what you actually think yeah. of that Dodgers trade. So take, yeah. take that for There's what you will. just a little mean reversion there going on. Yeah. 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 Um, in totality for the, the Cardinals here, I think that if they are done, I think it's fine. I think they've kind of done the bare minimum of what they needed to. I don't know how many Cardinals fans are going to be excited to watch Gibson and Lynn take the ball on back-to-back days, but... I think they'll at least give you some good starts that, that keep the team in it. Um, but there is still buzz that the guard, the Cardinals, I keep trying to call them the guardians um, <laughs> that the Cardinals might be in the market for one more starting pitcher, whether that's in free agency or a trade for a guy like Dylan Cease. So I think there's still a team to keep an eye on even after these three. I, but I, I think they've, they've put themselves in a good spot where if they miss out on everything, the rest of the off season, they're at least a much improved team going into 2024 yeah. and I think ready to contend. And they've protected their downside, right? So they've got some workhorses who can eat innings. And so at the very worst, there's that. Um, keep in mind, you have to fill 800 innings or so during the course of a season. A 60, 162, you know, game season, figure starter goes five innings. That's 800 innings you've got to fill. And so you need some guys who are going to give you 100 and. 50 100 and you know and and you need at least five of those guys right probably six or seven or eight and like you talk to gms they're like no we need 10 so you know all of that matters right even innings eaters yeah on the flip side of that innings eater kind of distinction the tigers sign kenta maeda uh it's a two-year deal 24 million dollars it's a little bit front-loaded uh maeda he was out for the entirety, I believe, of the 2022 season. I'm going to pull up his page here so I make sure I am not lying to you all. Um, yes, he was out the entirety of the 2022 season. Uh, he made 20 starts in 2023, and he was pretty okay. Um, th- there was another injury blip in there as well, but uh, his strikeout and walk numbers looked really good. His peripherals were all pretty solid. He, in general, he's throughout his career just been a really solid pitcher um and and this this kind of stint with injury here was really his first blip on what's been a successful big league career um and that's just again it's another rotation that could use some stability they are likely losing eduardo rodriguez this offseason and he was pretty solid for them pretty reliable presence 
they have a lot of younger guys with some upside, but those guys have all been banged up and or bad over the past few seasons to some extent. You know, Tariq Skubal is really good, but he hasn't been healthy consistently. And Matt Manning and Casey Mize have shown flashes, but they haven't really put together a full season of it. And so just adding another kind of upside play into that mix where the Tigers are in the AL Central. They can luck into a, a playoff spot in that division with if they just raise their floor enough. And I think this this move helps them do that. And he's also a guy who, you know, obviously could be a trade chip if things don't work out in their favor. So I, I like it. There's some upside. There's some risk. Um, but but I think it's a good fit for that team. Yep. So our model had him at um, fair value is 12.8 AV and he signed for 12. So the in other words, the Tigers got a little bit of a bargain there, um, likely because of that upside that you mentioned. He is 35. We know he's had injuries. We know he's getting older. Uh, but you can make the case that because he had injuries, it saved his arm a little bit in terms of you know mileage. So there's probably some a little bit more gas in the tank there. I'm using car analogies. I don't know why. <laughs> but anyway, we're <laughs> off by uh, 7% on the AV there, which is well in line. And as far as that mileage argument, with the Dodgers, he also kind of bounced between the rotation and the bullpen a yeah. lot. And so no. this wasn't, he doesn't have, you know, seven years of 30 starts a year under his belt. He's, yeah. like you said, lower mileage. He's been kind of conserved a little bit more. Yeah. Um, the Reds made a couple interesting pitching additions. We know that that's kind of their big need right now. They have a lot of really fascinating young offensive players, and they kind of just need to round out that pitching staff for us to treat them as a real complete team. And their first moves toward doing so we're signing Nick Martinez to a two-year... Actually, sorry, that's, this is a one-year... Eh, depends how you look at it, okay? <laughs> a two-year $26 million guarantee. That's actually a $14 million salary in 2024, and then an opt-out. And if he chooses not to opt-out, it'll be $12 million in 2025. So it's, you know, it's a 26 guarantee, um, but there's certainly a possibility. He's only in town for one year and $14 million. That seems like it's kind of, you know, the, this teens value is kind of the going rate for these mid to back end arms with, you know, some sort of a wart for them, but some sort of, you know, upside in inherent there. Um, so I, I would be shocked if if the model was in total disagreement with this one. But but go ahead and give me the numbers here for Nick Martinez. Uh, prepare to be shocked. So we're uh, a little off on this one um, and on, on the next one you're going to talk about as well. So um, largely because Nick Martinez is seen as a starter and he had most of his data points were as a reliever. So we were a little low. We had his, his uh, AAV at 8.6 and he signed for 13. So we're off by 34% on him. Now, again, we're modeling him as a reliever slash swingman as opposed to a pure starter the reds probably see him as a pure starter in which case that's why the, the they paid more they paid more obviously because if the whole market sees him as a starter um then he would be paid more it's hard to look at the evidence though and and imply that i mean because you just what we're doing is just looking at the cold hard facts and saying no he hasn't never really been a starter in his whole career other than maybe when he was younger so like that's not justified by the numbers so that's all that's why we're off i wonder if there's something to look at there where once a guy hits, you know, you know, in a trade for Nick Martinez a year or two ago, I think that's totally the right approach to modeling him. Once a guy hits free agency, if he's a valuable enough player that 
you know, he's going to get a roster spot and has some leverage as to what that roster spot looks like. You know, he can go into the offseason. And obviously, we have no way of knowing this. We have no way other than, you know, generally players probably prefer to be a starter over a reliever if they're in this kind of swingman spot. Um, so we have no idea specifically going into the offseason whether Nick Martinez prefers starting. But I, I think it's a safe enough assumption in these cases. He goes into the offseason with the leverage. He can say, I want to be a starting pitcher. Which team will give me the highest offer to be a starting pitcher? And I think you still have kind of the market effect of not every team's going to view him that way. And so fewer serious contenders for him, maybe you could expect that to bring his price down a little bit. But I wonder if that's something we should consider going forward for, yeah. for players like this. So it can go either way. So he hasn't been a starter for 10 years. He started when he was 23. Um, but if you look at his last few years, he's, you know, mostly been a reliever, right? So, but, and now Michael King, for example, is pretty much the same boat. He was phenomenal as a starter. And so that's being skewed a little bit by the projection systems, including ours. Um, and so we don't want to go too far in one direction or the other by assuming, okay, Michael King's a starter from now on, and he's going to be even more valuable than he already is. And, but maybe we're insisting, maybe there's something there. Um like I mentioned with Ronaldo Lopez and they're trying to protect him, project him as a starter and maybe even worth, worth, worth more. Um, so we'll definitely look into that. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Uh, you already alluded to this, but the next one is a pretty clear overpay. Uh, yeah. The Reds signed reliever Emilio Pagan, two years, $16 million. That's $8 million a year straight. Um, let's see. Oh, he does have an opt-out after the first season as well. Uh, that seems pretty solid for him, given kind of his inconsistencies yeah. and home run issues, and I, I think the model agrees. I mean, look, he was so bad in 2020, 21, 22, that he was a non-tender candidate, and people wondered why when he was with the Twins, that, for example, that they, they even tendered him a contract. Um, and then he figured something out in 2023. So, again, our model does bias towards the most recent year, but it also takes into account the track record. And so that's why we're off on this one. Uh, whereas the, the the Reds probably just say, okay, you changed something. Keep it going. And they're just basing it on the most recent year. So they paid him for $8 million, million year AV. We had him at 6.3 AV. Again, not that far off. Far enough, they're like, yeah, that's an overpay. Um, so uh, because we're taking a little bit more into account the track record and a, a mean reversion situation, which is what we need to do on the whole. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Fangraphs headline for the signing coming from the, the one and only Michael Bauman, who said, Red signed Pagan, risk giving up a million home runs. <laughs> a million, you know, yeah. Emilio with an N at the end of it. Yeah. And as Red's, fans put, Red's fans put it on Twitter, he's going to a Homer-friendly park in Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. Exactly. So, what? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see. Um, yeah. We're going to go rapid fire on these last few. I'm just going to kind of give you the terms and you'll tell me yep. what the model thinks. Uh, Luis Severino, we already talked about this briefly. One year, $13 million with the Mets. We had him at 12-6. We're on to the 13. We're there. Works for me. Uh, not sure if you'll have this one up right now, but Joey Wendell to the Mets as well on a one year, $2 million guarantee. We had him at 1.2. Yeah, we're a little off. But eh, close <laughs> enough. Joey Wendell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Dodgers re-signed Jason Hayward, one year, $9 million. Yeah, we had him at 7.3, so we're off by 170 there. But the, we, don't, we don't account for the veteran presence, so there you go. <laughs> the, the, the clubhouse value. They they did love the guy, so you're not going to yeah. haggle over a million now, dollars now, if now, you're the Dodgers. I'm, I'm, 
by the way, all these numbers that I'm citing here are based on our most recent update. Prior to that update, we had them at 8.7. So, you know, for what that's worth. But I'm not going to bank on it, yeah. but I'm just saying. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, Joe Kelly, one year and question mark, question mark, question mark. Uh, what does the model exactly. think about him? <laughs> <laughs> I know some people really don't like Joe Kelly, uh, personally, because of all his oddness, but well, that's another story. Yeah, we don't what have... is a just, just for curiosity? What does the model have him at? Um, if you have this up right now, uh, um, I'd have to. I, I'd uh, let's see. Um, we can just pull it up on our site in our value player value timeline, and we'll see what Joe Kelly is worth. Um, now we said it's a one year deal. I believe so. I, so so the reasoning here, uh, <laughs> I should probably provide some context. Kelly's resigning with the Dodgers. We just haven't gotten a report yet on the terms. Um, According to John Heyman, quote, it's expected that Kelly signed a one-year contract, which makes some sense. And uh, they had a $9.5 million club option on Kelly, so you'd expect it to be below that. And it is. Uh, we have him at 7.2 fair value. So okay. I'm so, going to guess that's pretty close. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll follow up on that next time if we remember. Uh, yes. Last one here. Garrett Hampson to the Royals on a one-year, $2 million contract as well. That's the going rate for scrappy, gritty, not really all that great backup infielders, I guess. Yes, and guess what we had him at? Two, right on the money. Works for me. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so couple more overall. quick hits. Oh, oh yeah, oh. yeah. Let, let's give a quick overall recap. Go for it. Overall recap, our model is, with, is 13%, um, mostly because of Pagan and Martinez. Otherwise, we're in the single digits, so we're pretty close. Yeah, and, and NOLA factors in there as well, and that's kind of a, an unusual case, right? So yep. I'm not sure we should even count that one against the model. Okay. Um, a couple more quick hits, like I said. Uh, the Padres have named Mike Schilt their manager. Um, just want to kind of close the book on the managerial carousel we've talked about for the last handful of episodes. I know you and I talked for a while on one of those episodes about how they're going to go after kind of a Joe Girardi, Bruce Bochy, like a, a veteran manager type. And, you know, Schilt's maybe not the most traditional guy in that mold of the Buck Show Walter. You know, we had that, <laughs> we, we had some speculation there of the types of guys they could be targeting. Um, Schilt is kind of the best of both worlds in this sense where he's been with the Padres for a little bit here, but he does have that experience and he was kind of like his, his firing in St. Louis was kind of controversial. It wasn't necessarily that he did anything wrong. I think they just kind of wanted a new look over there and maybe needed a scapegoat. And so I don't have any negative opinions about Schilt as a manager really that come to mind off the top of my head. So I think this is a, a fine choice for them, not flashy, but Hey, if they're also facing some payroll issues, why not save a million a year by getting the the this this sounds mean, uh, getting the the generic brand <laughs> veteran presence manager rather than paying big bucks for the Bob Melvin or or Bochy types or Showalter or whoever like they they they'll probably get about the same job done, be just about as productive as a manager. Why not save a few bucks there? Yeah, and remember he had that 17-game winning streak with the Cardinals or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, so, so he, you know, he was a hot commodity there for a while. Um, but then it, so it was a surprise when he got fired. And I saw one report that said it's because he stood up to um, the front office with some, some comments they didn't like. 
so um, they thought they weren't on the same page, which kind of resonates because that's pretty much what they said when they fired him. Like we were not on the same page. Um, so the question, so but the players loved him. Xavier Scruggs, uh, MLB Network guys said he was great when he played for him. So you know the question is really, you know, seems like it gets along well with the players. Is he going to get along with uh, you know the front office? Well. You know, Preller just promoted him, so presumably yes. So could yeah. be a good good marriage. This isn't an outside guy where you're kind of gambling yeah. on that. There's at least right. some prior relationship there that you're going off of, and obviously the right. the dynamic can change once you go from bench coach who doesn't necessarily have a say in, in some of the transactional or or lineups or things like that. Jump from that to manager. That's that's a a change for sure. But you'd imagine that. Preller at least has some level of confidence in their working relationship going forward to be making this promotion. Um, right. And then last name I wanted to follow up on, Gabe Kapler, who was uh, booted from San Francisco uh, prior to the offseason. He has found a new job, though it is not in the dugout. He's going to be joining the Marlins front office as an assistant GM. And that's a role that he he was in... Was it the Phillies front office before he was tabbed to manage that team? Or was it a different? Oh, it was the Dodgers front office. That's what yeah, I'm thinking of. Right. Yep. Yeah. So he has that experience and he was reportedly in the running for the Red Sox uh, president of baseball operations job. Yeah. And so it makes some sense. And this is the Marlins continuing to kind of rebuild that front office after letting Kim Ng go. That's a really smart hire, I think. Um, you know, he's been known to be like an analytics guy, and that's why the Giants hired him, so he can kind of be the translator from the front office to the players. You know, he wears stylish glasses. He looks smart. <laughs> he won the Handsome Man the Manager of the Year Award a couple times, I think, so he's out of that category for now, but uh, he'll do well in the front office. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. And the last bit of news that I want to make sure we get a couple minutes for, I know we're over on time, but I think this is important, is the Brewers and Jackson Chorio are finalizing an unprecedented contract extension. So Chorio only has a handful of AAA at-bats. He's one of the top prospects in the game. And, you know, it, it's kind of one of those cases where if he didn't get extended, you might have seen them kind of game his service time a little bit next season. But if this extension goes through, he'll potentially you know we'll see how spring training goes but potentially be starting opening day with the big league club which could be a big shot in the arm for a brewers team that you know is kind of treading water in a lot of areas and is really going to feel the lack of brandon woodruff next season especially with teams like the cubs and cardinals and reds gearing up and trying to catch them in that division so from that perspective it it could be a meaningful change for this team as early as 2024 but the deal itself Eight years, $82 million is what's been reported so far with two club options worth $25 million each. Um, unprecedented for a player who hasn't made the big leagues yet. The previous top contract was six years, $50 million to Luis Robert Jr. before his debut. Um, I think there's some club options there as well. Uh, Similar-ish deal to Eloy Jimenez, who the, the uh, White Sox also extended very early on. And then the kind of other comparisons that you get into are Scott Kingery with the Phillies and Evan White with the Mariners. And those are not as <laughs> favorable of comparisons as, as these pre-arbitration deals go, or not, excuse me, not pre-arbitration, pre-debut deals go, or John Singleton with the Astros. But I think there's a huge difference between, you know, those last three names and the first two of Jimenez and Robert, where 
those those last three guys, you know, yeah, Kingery and White maybe had a little bit of prospect helium, and Singleton was a, a decent prospect at some point, but those were not the same caliber of prospect as Luis Robert or Eloy Jimenez or Jackson Chorio. Like, that's a different echelon of guy. And so I don't know if I have a whole ton to say here just because I've, I'm no scout, and even if I was a scout, I've never seen Jackson Chorio play in person or, or anything. I've barely watched much video of him, if I'm being completely honest. But looking at the numbers and looking at what people say about him, he could kind of just be that next big thing. And, you know, if if the Brewers, a, a historically smaller market, you know, lower spending team, are willing to commit this much money to him, then that kind of tells me something about him. You know, I think the Brewers are a smart organization. And if they've identified that this guy is going to be worth this kind of commitment up front and, and trying to save themselves some money down the line in years, you know, five, six, seven, eight, plus those two club options of the deal. They think that they're, that this kind of risky commitment up front is worth what kind of surplus they might get in those, the back half of this deal. Um, I, I think I'm inclined to trust them. They know a lot more about this guy than I do. And if they think he's, he's worth this, then sure. He's worth this. So a few points here. Um, Really interesting deal, um, and I'm all in favor of, of it from the Brewers' perspective because they're locking in value, at, you know, in his younger years, and he's only going to get better as he goes theoretically. So they're getting a bargain, and a lot of this is a trend. It has typically been after they've made their debut, Corbin Carroll, for example, um, and and but so it is a little bit rare. Now we haven't modeled it on our site because it is so rare, and we really don't have a track record to go on because typically that's what you least need some track record to go on. We blend prospect values with major league data once we, once they debut in the majors and, and we go from there and kind of, you know, skew it more and more towards the majors as they get more experience with a guy who has no major league experience. It's all just, you know, projections based on, you know, based on scouting reports. So you just kind of have to go, okay, he's got like 72 million in surplus or whatever it is right now. He's signing for 80 million. Do the math back of the envelope. Let's say you know you can project him for, you know, so that means he's got 150-ish surplus value, right? Um, you'd have to kind of figure out, kind of back into what's he going to produce on the field. Let's say he's a two to three WAR player over the course of what is it, eight years? Uh, uh, yeah, eight so, and two club options. Yeah, so if he's a two WAR player. You know, and and let's say with inflation, we're getting up into like 10 million per war, right, over the course of the next 10 years. So I'm keeping it incredibly simple, mind you. Bear with me. <laughs> so two war times eight is 160 million in value. They're giving it, you know, and and so he's roughly around the same surplus value we have now. So when we let's say he puts up 160 million in value over those eight years, and they're paying him 82 for that, leaving something in the high 70s as surplus, which is exactly where we have him. So that's kind of the base case, right? Um, so you're basically when you when you sign an extension like this, the team has all the leverage, so they're keeping what what the surplus value is. That's kind of our way of looking at it. Now I'm just making up kind of temporary numbers because just to kind of paint the picture. Um, in reality, there's a lot of probability going on behind the scenes. He could be a superstar and put up four war, five war, six war seasons. He could be a total bust. Like those other guys, like Evan White and, and Scott Kingery, you mentioned. So they have to sort of split the difference, the 50%, 50%, and do up at a two war about where we are. And that's kind of more or less where they ended up at that number, I think. Um, 
So, so I think it's so I think it makes all the sense in the world. Now, I, a lot of commentators are saying it doesn't make sense for Turio because he's you know he's leaving money on the table. Well, that's true, but if he hadn't done it, he'd be making league minimum for three years and then going into his RB years for the next three. He wouldn't get paid as much, first of all. Um, getting this money up front, he can if he's smart invest that money and watch it compound for his benefit and get you know and grow even more. And then, you know, because he's so young, he's going to enter free agency still in his prime. So to me, it's a win-win, you know, both from the player's perspective and the team's perspective. Uh, the one caution I would say is, you know, I'm not a scout. We're trusting our sources for scouting information. But if you look at his Fangraphs page and you look at his WRC+, you know, you want like young superstars numbers to jump off the page and go like, wow. His numbers don't jump off the page, and I'm starting to wonder. And I get that he's been a teenager, 18 and 19 years old, but, you know, and I get some, sometimes the small sample size is small. But as a 19-year-old in AA, it was only a 112 WRC+. Plus. I say only with a grain of salt because he was 19, probably really young for AA. And that's probably the answer is, like, okay, if he were a 23-year-old, the numbers would be jumping off the page. So forget I said that. It's because he's so young and presumably so talented that that's why they're doing this. I think there was also a split there, and I'm going to try and pull this up really quick. Um, I actually don't know if I can in the amount of time that we have. But I do remember reading that I think it was the first half of that season or so in double A. It was it was something with, you know, they were trying the pre-tacked balls. Mm. And he had a really slow start to the year. And as soon as they switched back to the old balls, it was either that or the other way around. There was some sort of a switching with the pre-tacked balls. And as soon as things switched, it just lit a little fire under him. And like mm. he was dominating the rest of the season back to the same kind of superlative performer you saw in a ball in 2022. So mm -hmm. I, I think that was a factor as well of, of maybe dragging down his numbers a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then the one other thing I want to mention here, you were talking about kind of the benefits and how it would have taken him so long to get paid if he didn't sign this deal. That's not even to mention that they could have screwed around with him in 2024. You know, he signs this deal. He's getting paid in 2024, no matter what, you know, he, if he goes out in spring training and presses too hard and they decide, eh, let's, let's give him a month or two at AAA anyway, then he's still getting paid versus if he doesn't have this deal in hand, who knows if and when we see him in the 2024 season. It could be late enough in the 2024 season. And I, I know the CBA has new incentives to try and avoid this, but it could be late enough in the 2024 season that, you know, there's an extra year of service time being gained there and that he's avoiding Super yeah, 2, right. things like that. And so that could right. push that timeline back another year. And so, yeah, it just makes a lot of sense. You know, you're handing a guy, hey, we are going to give you $80 million. You are going to hit free agency early. And if you're very good, you're going to get another $50 million tacked on top of that. You, you game and you get to start playing in the big leagues for us next year. Like, I don't know how you say no to that. Like, that's there's money on the table, but it's there's there, there is always guaranteed to be some level of of money of surplus value on the table just because of baseball's financial system. So why not get this big payday early, set yourself for life. And then if you go out and turn into the player that people think you can, guess what? You're going to double triple that when you do hit free agency in your prime at the end of this deal. Yeah. Like I said, I think it's all on the whole, I think it's a good deal for the player as well as him. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we haven't done this in a while, but we went way over. Uh. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? No, I'm done. <laughs> Thank you, though. All right. 
Well, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Uh, we're also on Blue Sky. Make sure you're following us there as well if you're on that platform. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.